Hello, everyone. It's the Wiggly Wigglers number 10 podcast. We have to be tucked up warm today, don't we, Rich? Yep, chilly today. We're in the high-tech Wiggly Wigglers studio, which is the sitting room. Yeah, we've just come in from tobogganing. (laughs) We have. We've had a a small party of toboggan moment uh, up the field with the quad bike and snow and sledges and, yeah, (laughs) cameramen, etc. But I must tell you what's on this week's show. We're going to talk about feeding the birds and what they need when it's particularly cold because we've had lots of customers talking about that because the instant it snows... We think of the birds, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, Phil's coming in. He's got a problem, and he's going to talk about TB and cattle. Right. And right. on the radio all this week has been people talking about TB, so that'll be interesting. It will be good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you the special code to claim some dosh off. Right, right. Uh, so that'll be good. Yeah. And we're going to give out the number that we are in the iTunes chart as at today. Jodie's going to pop in because she's been planting up the flower meadow. And then we've got Monty. So I think we better get on with the show. Oh, I've forgotten the book review. Because we're not having a book review. We're actually going to talk about the new Wiggly book. Yeah, so that'll be good. Hopefully. Yeah. So on with the show, Rich. Okie dokie. There's always a recipe for human food, but with bird food, there seems to be so many options. Do you think it's time we had a sort of Jamie Oliver bird book, Rich? A Jamie Oliver (laughs) bird book? It would be interesting if there was a book that suggested what types of food was fed at different times of the year. Yeah, because there's so many options, isn't there? I mean, you know, apples, fats, nuts, seeds, all the different grains. Which do we pick when? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's probably more on the menu for birds. And people are inclined to feed their birds better than themselves. <laughs> uh, they'll buy something, they'll put some dodgy package stuff out of the freezer, and yet they'll be keen to feed their birds on the best quality mealworms, you know, live food packed with protein and fat. Yeah, I mean, it's not so very long ago where we were all just putting out a bit of bread for the birds and leaving it that, really. That's right. I think it was interesting, you know, when I was a kid, I remember Dad always used to get the bottom of his porridge pan and leave it in the in the sink to soak. And Mum used to go and scrape out the pan and put all the, the soft, squidgy porridge on the bird table. And the birds used to love that in the winter. I mean, that's when you tend to eat porridge as well. And all the scraps used to put bread and stuff on the table and the birds used to come and feed on that. Nothing wrong with porridge all year round, you know. Uh, really? You can have a bowl of instant porridge now, so you just pour a bit of boiling water in and it's instantly there. Really good for on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) We've gone back to boats again. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, porridge. Porridge is great, isn't it? But there are lots of alternatives now, and I think people, because people have got more expendable income, you know, they'll buy great big bags of bits and pieces to, to feed the birds with, and they've got a whole throng of squabbling going on in the garden. Yeah, I mean, we've got customers who, when they phone in, they say, well, you know, she'll say, my husband is really into wine, right? and I am really into feeding the birds. Uh-huh. And that's what gives her pleasure. Fair exchange. Absolutely. Fair exchange. It's great to look out the window and see the birds feasting and, and looking after themselves on the food that you provide for them, isn't it? Yeah. Feel a sense of achievement from it. So what should we use when? What do they need at what 
time of the year. I think when it's really cold like this, I mean, look out the window now and the snow on the barn roofs, and there's a crystal blue sky and a real north wind blowing. The, the birds are going to be cold. Mm. They're going to be puffing their feathers up and they're going to need lots of fat, aren't they, to line their little bodies with. Um, so peanuts, brilliant, fantastic, lots mm. and lots of fat. People tend to feed peanuts, you know, predominantly. I mean, you know, in the summertime, people are kind of leaning towards eating that now. But peanuts are great, but lard, any sort of fat, suet is great, isn't it? You know, if you can go to your local butcher, perhaps get some suet, order some uh, order some suet-based fat feeders. Like you say peanuts, but do you think that's the best thing? What about sunflower hearts? Because they're full of protein, and peanuts come all the way from the Gambia, don't they? You can't grow them in this country. No. Know. But peanuts are always going to be ported. They're used for human foods as mm. well, aren't they? We've got Oils, some English sunflowers here on the farm at the moment. Yeah. They don't look as good, do they, Phil? Phil's here. English sunflowers are a bit of a problem, really, yeah. because it's a bit marginal as to whether you can grow them. But certainly in the east of the country, they seem to work quite well. But we're, we're going to have a go. But the real problem is when they're ripe, if you don't have a dry time, they tend to rot in the head of the sunflower. Right. The ones we've got here, which were grown a little bit north of us, they look grubby. They're but okay, though, from, aren't they? From the point of view of the birds, I think they'd be absolutely fine. I don't think it's a problem. And as I say, we're, we're going to plant, it'll be about six or eight acres this time, see how we get on. Because most yeah. sunflowers are grown in France, aren't they? A lot of them are, yeah. Massive and fields, and um, hungry grow a lot of sunflowers. Oh, right. I went down to uh, Creeley Adventure Park the other day to talk to the owner about bits and pieces and they have a maze made of sunflowers. So they plant up their sunflower maze every year. So this fantastic maze of oh, you know, cool. sunflowers and they leave the sunflowers for the birds to feed on over the winter. So isn't, really? that, isn't that brilliant? Yeah, yeah, what a great idea. So I was, you know, I was quite taken aback by that. Uh, I'm so surprised you came home, actually, because your sense of direction normally lets us down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember trying to go to the NEC BBC Gardeners flower show and you insisted that we went up the M6 <laughs> for quite some time. Yeah. So I'm, it's nice to have you back yeah. from Creeley Adventure oh, there Park. You go. I think perhaps it's because I didn't have a woman in the car with me. <laughs> Do you really, Richard? Yeah, yeah I'm sticking to that. Yeah, you should try yeah. going Ross Monmouth, Richard. Yes, that's the, Phil sets off everywhere, Ross Monmouth. Ross Doesn't Monmouth. matter where we go, it could be Scotland, he goes Ross Monmouth. <laughs> that seems perfectly sensible. <laughs> what about fruit? Because uh, berries and things at the moment, is there a way that... There are. I mean, bears are obviously stuffing their faces with berries, the ones they can get hold of. You have thrushes, the field fairs, red wings, bits and pieces. So they're going to be looking to feed on all the whores. Most held berries and stuff have been eaten now. Yeah. Uh, holly berries, bits and pieces like that. Even things like spindleberry. Spindleberries, for instance, tend to get left later because they, they haven't got a very good taste. Mm. But, again, you see, if you can plant those native species in your garden, then you're also providing a source of food mm. for, the, for the birds, a wild source of food, sustainable source of food. What about the feeders that you put out? Because, you know, you, it's easy to feed blue tits, isn't it? You just put your seed feeder out and they just go for it, don't they? That's right, they but do. But things like thrushes and blackbirds... You can feed on the ground, can't you? You can get, um, you can make or buy some yeah. kind of hopper to put on the ground, and the, and those ground feeders will will be able to get access to that. Also, apples are great. If you can keep apples in cold storage mm. throughout the course of the winter, and then just keep them, keep popping them out onto you know onto a log pile or something on your garden, or you, you can get apple feeders. You can get like a skewer that you can put your apple on. They're great. You know, the birds really enjoy apples in, the, mm. in this cold weather. So that's a relatively cheap way of feeding the birds. And if you can grow apple trees again you'll provide an sustainable source of food and what about the other extreme the live food i think live food's great you can uh, you can you can buy mealworms obviously but uh, oh, yeah. you can you can breed <laughs> mealworms as well can't you 
Yeah, you can, actually. If you've got a bit of time, a bit of dedication, you can get your mealworm starter kit and you can breed your own mealworms. You've got a bit of space, some you know the right kind of conditions, um, and then you've, you've obviously got a, a source of food that you can keep dipping into all the time to mm. put over the birds. But the birds love mealworms. It's a real treat for them. They reckon that feeding mealworms can make a real difference to the amount of broods that you actually have yeah. in a season. Yeah. And they're doing some studies at the moment in Worcester to see what real difference mealworms make and, I mean, according to the Gospel of Bill Oddie, it's big news, isn't it? The difference yeah. that you can make feeding mealworms. The most important thing, though, is to put them out consistently, isn't it? The thing that worries me is people feed spasmodically, then you inadvertently cause problems. If birds realise a source of food and it suddenly dries up, yeah. then that might cause problems in itself. Regular feeding is probably the most important thing. It is. I tell you what, I got on to the telly talking about mealworms earlier this week. You did, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. the interviewer, Ken Goodwin, he kept saying, they're maggots. And I was just so mad. And then we heard you screaming. Yeah, they're not maggots. <laughs> and he wouldn't have it. But the, the, the key thing to know is that maggots are meat eaters in themselves, aren't they? So yeah. they could pass some sort of disease, whereas mealworms are... Very clean. Very clean. Very clean. Very and clean uh, and hygienic. They just live in bran, don't they? Yeah. Here, they live in bran and you've got no worries about your kiddies handling them and messing about no, with them. You could even not. put them in your pan and fry a few up if you wanted to. <laughs> thought you were going to say pants. Put <laughs> <Are> your pants. <laughs> you could do that if you like. On the scale of the farm, Bill has started to put out cleanings from the grain store so that we can feed the ducks around the pond, haven't you, Phil? Yeah, well, we obviously we produce a, a number of byproducts in the way of cleanings, and ducks love barley. Right. And they're not particularly fussed where it comes from, and so we've got barley cleanings, they'll have some of that. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll mix that with some good barley as well so that they can sort through that. But it's probably best that we feed it just by chucking it out on the grass so mm. that the bits they don't like, because there's a certain amount of dust and rubbish involved, they can just pick out the bits that they like. Then nothing a bird likes better, particularly a ground-feeding one, than scratching through stuff and sorting it out. You've given us some grass seeds to trial. Which Richard's got, haven't you, Rich? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm going to take him home and put him in, um, put him in some seed feeders and see whether the birds have a particular preference for the different types of species. There are different species in those bags, though, aren't there? What I gave you was one species, but we clean grass seeds mostly by size and weight. Right. And those are all the waste. Right. But birds eat grass seeds, so it occurred to me that what would otherwise be thrown away you know, might have some value to the birds, so we'll see. Yeah. It's known that birds like sparrows and so on eat grass seeds, so why not feed them? So, Richard, when will your trials be complete? Because I need to know okay. what the results are. Where are we now? It's uh, OK, well, if we said trials be complete by middle of January, give what? us an idea, won't it? Great. Yeah, a few weeks. So listen in and you'll find out the results of Richard's trial with grass seed. The Wheelie Podcast. Let your iPod bloom! For those listeners who heard a slight grunting and groaning sound earlier, can I just assure you that that, that wasn't Phil Farmer or, in fact, Richard. It was, in fact, Toast snoring. She has been racing around the field trying to keep up with Phil and his quad and the toboggan. And apparently she can go 30 miles an hour and she's now snoring. So apologies to all listeners. It's a chocky dog. Phil's come to talk to us about TB today after his uh, chats about seed. That's what we really want to talk about. What do you want to know, Rich? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That's a very topical 
TB. Well, that's right, and Herefordshire is one of the acknowledged hotspots for TB in the country. The southwest have got lots of problems as well. You, you did a, 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 an interview on the local radio the other day, didn't you? I did. I gather I'm a Herefordshire farmer in revolt. <laughs> Right? No, Phil, you're a revolting Herefordshire farmer. <laughs> <Likely>. <laughs> very good, yeah, very good. So, <laughs> so um, what's, what sort of stuff were you talking about? What's, what's given the people the impression that you're uh, revolting? Well, that, that was one sentence in what I felt was quite a positive comment on TB. Basically, I think there's a certain amount of misunderstanding, misinformation, even within the farming industry on TB. Right. The badger comes in for a lot of flack. And whilst it's crucially involved in the transmission and spread of TB, it's not necessarily the badger's fault. And the solution, I don't think, lies in wanton slaughter of badgers or necessarily cattle. Could we step back a little moment here and say, what is TB? Who gets it? Quick background. TB, or tuberculosis, is a disease that affects the lungs and breathing systems of animals. There are several distinct strains of it which don't cross over, so human TB is totally different from bovine TB, and then you have avian TB, which is another one. But bovine TB, as its name suggests, is caught by cattle, and sadly for the badgers, they too can get bovine TB. Right. And therein lies the problem. Many years ago, it's widely held, and I see no reason to doubt it, the badgers caught bovine TB from the cattle. Having got it, they then now spread it back to the cattle. And at the moment, the only control measures in place involve testing the cattle, and any cattle that come back with a positive test are taken away and slaughtered. That's it, nothing else happens. So that whilst there are badgers roaming the countryside with TB, it's going to be very difficult to eradicate it. That's mad, isn't it? Because in theory, the only way to eradicate TB entirely, if badgers are responsible for carrying it, is to wipe out the whole population of badgers. Well, no, this is where I, I disagree, because as I understand it, when a badger gets TB, at first it shows no symptoms at all, and while it shows no symptoms, it's not infectious. When it starts to cough and splutter, that's when it's become infectious, and it's set, then kicks it out, chases it away. Right and it sets off across the countryside feeling ill and sorry for itself. And because they mark their territory as they walk across fields, they're urinating all the time, and that is infectious. Mm. The cattle then pick up the grass that they've urinated on, transmission goes back. But what's forgotten is the TB will kill that badger, but in the meantime it's spread it all over where it's been. Right. It's quite a difficult disease to catch, You know that that badger can come into contact with another group of badgers and they won't get it and they'll chase it away. If you slaughter badgers, you get a gap in the population, and the ill ones will find these holes in the population, and they stop there because you know nobody chases them away. Right. Then they give the cattle TB in that area, and you have another outbreak. And my view is that the only way forward sensibly is the vaccination of certainly the badgers and probably the cattle, although that throws up big problems with the export of cattle, because... Basically, vaccination of cattle for certain things precludes them from being allowed to be exported. So if there's a vaccination, is there a treatment? There's no sensible treatment for it. Well, we're told that we can't cure it, although you can alleviate the symptoms of it. What are the dangers to human beings? Can people still catch TB? They can catch human TB, but they can't catch bovine TB. And we're assured that there is no danger to humans from cattle having or not having TB or badgers. Does it affect the meat? No. So what is the problem? It produces lesions on its lungs. 
so that basically it spends all its time coughing and there's a lot of saliva and rubbish and, and eventually it, it just dies. So what happens at the moment? All I hear about every time I go to the pub is TB testing, we're shut down, we can't trade. The situation at the moment is that we as farmers, cattle keepers, are obliged by the government to test our cattle or to have the, the vets in to test our cattle for TB. And that's a simple skin test. So they inoculate the cow on, say, Monday, and then on Thursday you go and see whether those inoculations have caused a reaction. If it reacts, then you measure the reaction. If it's reacted a lot, then it's called a reactor, and that is compulsory slaughter for that animal, at which point they take swabs from it and try and culture TB. The reason for the stress is that the day you have a reactor, you are then what's called shut down, so that you can't move any animal off the premises, or onto it for that matter, without a licence, other than to go direct to the abattoir. And this has huge financial implications for people. Yeah. And in, in many ways, a lot of people describe it as being worse than foot and mouth because there's no compensation for all the consequential loss. You get compensated for the animals that they take to slaughter, yeah. but there's no compensation for being shut down, for not being able to trade. And it's like living on a time bomb, and it's more frustrating because just testing and slaughtering cattle on the face of it, doesn't seem to achieve a lot. Right. And so at the same time as we're testing and slaughtering cattle, whether they've got it or not, that's if they react, is it? If they react, they get slaughtered. But at the same time, nobody is allowed to control the badger population in any way at all? Not at all. Hmm. What's your solution? Because this sounds like a very complicated problem. It does. Well, it is complicated and it is expensive. I don't have a straight solution, although I believe a vaccine to be yeah. critical to it. But what interests me is that in Ireland in the 80s, they'd got a serious TB problem over there, and they brought out a vaccine which they trialled over there, and they got somewhere 60 to 80% control, which isn't very good. Most people would say that's not a good enough vaccine, but my feeling is that if you reduced it by that much, it must help and that if you can bring down the spread of TB and reduce it like that, it, it will alleviate the situation to some extent. The other thing which is important is that I do believe that animals that are not stressed and are healthy, are, they are resistant to it, they find it harder to catch it. And similarly, I believe that to be the case with the badgers. If you stress them and rough them up or shoot them illegally or whatever, they become more likely to get it. Mm. And therefore I take the view, I mean, our situation at the moment is that we're clear of TB, right. but we're testing every six months. But that means that we think our badgers are clean of TB. Sure. And so that I maintain our badgers assiduously. You know, I, I take the view that whatever crop damage they do and so on is small price to pay. If they're healthy, they will tend to keep out any diseased ones roaming around the countryside. Sure. But if I were to harm them, then obviously that would leave the population gap. Absolutely. It makes it seems to make perfect sense. There's a campaign locally by a woman who's trying to sort this issue out and she wants farmers to join her. She's trying to make the government rethink its TB policy and vaccinate cattle. And how can it possibly be right to just go around killing animals for the sake of it? I think that that idea is widely held by farmers to be correct. The way we're going forward is not entirely pointless, but it's a lot of work for very little result. And if the government don't do something more positive about it, 
then they're going to lose the goodwill of farmers testing their animals, which is a lot of work and it stresses the animals in the first place. The cost and effort required to maintain the current situation is ridiculous and it seems, and this came out in foot and mouth as well, that the vaccination and the resistance against it is only an academic resistance. It's, it's, oh well, we can't export our cattle. Well, very few of us do export our cattle. The majority the cattle stay in this country. So mm. is it a big price to pay to sort out the export problem compared to this expensive and needless, I think, slaughter of cattle? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of politics down on the farm. A lot of politics. I think Phil's, uh, Phil's view is, is pretty sound, though, you know. It seems to make perfect sense to me. Well, on that harmonious note of Richard agreeing with Phil, we'll leave it there. Bye for now. We haven't got a book review this week, Rich, but what we have got is chapter one of the new Wiggly book, which is going to come out in May. Have yeah. you, you've had a chance to have a quick look. Well, I just had a quick flick through. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's really, really interesting. I mean, it's going to be a, a splendid book, I think, by uh, early indications. When's it, when's it likely to be finished, you say, about May time? Yeah, it's uh, being finished writing in December. Right. Then Michael will lay it all out and put all the photographs in in January. Right. And then we'll print it in February. And so people can pre-order in March, ready for publishing in May. Great. But all the bones of the book are there. Right. So we've got star plants in each chapter, star creatures in each chapter. Yep. It's going to be great. It's been really interesting. I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to it anyway. And uh, we all get a chance to contribute, don't we, I think, in some small way to, to this book. Yeah. So. It's the story of us making our garden here at Blakemere. And obviously that brings in just about everybody because just about all of us use the garden at some point or another. So there will be contributions from yourself, I hope, mm. and uh, everyone else. Do you want to read the first bit? That's, that's really nice. That give, give people an indication of, of what it's like. All right, then. Imagine an idyllic rural setting, rolling hills clothed with green oak trees, gently sloping fields full of wheat and contented cows. No noise except for the twitter of a swallow and the buzz of a bumblebee. Butterflies flit from wildflower to wildflower along the hedgerows in the evening sunlight, and as dusk approaches, the ghostly outline of a barn owl quarters the fields, searching for voles and mice to take to her growing brood in a hole in a nearby tree. Now, I must say that this is Jenny Steele's own start, so right. it's how she's looking at Wiggly Wiggler, so right. it doesn't keep that flowery. <laughs> it doesn't keep that flowery. No. It's quite, yeah, it is it? I suppose that's quite a romantic, um, a soft way of, of looking at the, the farm and Wigglies, isn't it? Yeah, but there's lots of practical tips of how you can actually change your garden in a tiny setting. We'll keep you informed on the book in future podcasts, but one of the key players who actually built the garden here at Wiggly Wigglers was Jodie. And she's been busy this week, so I'm going to ask her to come on in. Nice to see you, Jodie. Hello. Hi, Jodie. You've been very busy this morning, haven't you? Why is that? Because it snowed and no staff turned up, (laughs) funnily enough. (laughs) So what have you been up to, Jodie? Well, apart from shoveling the pads and watching you two guys play snowballs... Oh, no! Caught, Richard! <laughs> I, 
have been busily doing other people's jobs like packing parcels, answering the phone and generally all the things that we do here at Wigan. Any particular special parcel this morning? Oh, lots of mealworms going out today because the weather's getting colder. Tons of seed going out for the Right, I've got to stop you because I've just got to ask you, what were you up to last week with the flowers, please? Um, We planted up in the cutting patch over 3,000 bulbs for the bouquets. Really? Yep. How did you know what you were doing? You went to see Sarah Raven, I think. That's right, yeah. Back in February, Anne, and Anne, who makes the bouquets, and I went up to Sarah Raven's garden and learned about how to grow flowers in our cutting garden to make up the bouquets that we do now. And what involvement has Billy had? Billy is my brother, Billy Digger Driver. Billy Digger Driver has dug us two <laughs> trenches, um, about 30 metres long and about a metre wide, and they're about 10 inches deep, and we've planted the 3,000 tulip bulbs in them. So uh, will they all flower at once? Or not? No, there's a mixture. There's about 10 different varieties of tulips, and they'll flower from May to, so from the beginning of April to the end of May. A bit boring, old tulips all the time. Any, anything else, Joe? We put in anemones and some ranunculus as well. Mm. So there's about a thousand of those in all. Right. Well, it'd be lovely if you kept us up to date, Joe, with how you get on in the cutting patch. There's so much more to hear about, isn't there, Rich? There is. There's loads more. There's loads more we can talk about. And, and Jodie can tell us why Wiggly's are selling bouquets. You know, what, what was the inspiration behind the you know, the whole kind of bouquet thing in the first place. Yeah, and I want to hear all about the day that they spent at Sarah Raven's cutting garden. That's right. That Where was be it, really Joe, down in Suffolk? Surrey. Surrey, there we are. So, yeah, will you come back that. in, Joe? I'd love to, yep. Nice. Lovely. Great. I've got two celebrations this week. The first is, today we are number 100 in the iTunes chart. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've been higher, but 100's pretty good. Yeah. And the second thing is, it's a big happy birthday to Monty, nine years old. So over we go to the Weekly Wiggly Wormcast by Monty. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. Worms do not have lungs. They breathe through their skin. They take in oxygen through their skin and it goes right into the bloodstream. Their skin must stay wet in order for the oxygen to pass through it. So they like damp conditions best. Thank you, Monty. Now, I've got a special code for listeners to claim DOSH off when they order via Wiggly website. So, here it is. The special code which you need to put in at the end of your order is PC3031 and you'll get 10% off. Real. Good one. Do you know I have missed so much this week, no chocolate rating? Uh, No, I haven't missed it at all, you see. (laughs) Haven't you really? No, not at all. Not at all. I think that's perhaps a good thing. Is that a set of precedent for future weeks or are we, are we going back to chocolate ratings next week? We are going <laughs> back, Richard. Have you seen uh, the blog? Sorry to look forward by, to. Um... I did. I did. I looked at that. A chap that sent us in a blog and I, his name escapes me. Jim. And he wants uh, he wants us to put Cadbury's at the top. He does. we're not going he to. He wants to put... He thinks our chocolate ratings are not visionary enough. No, he doesn't, no. <laughs> Oh, it's John's Ramblings. John's Ramblings. Yeah. That's what he it is. wants at the top green and blacks, mayor gold. Second, Monty Zoomers. Then green and blacks, fruit and nut. 
then Cadbury's, then Hershey's. He agrees that Hershey's not is chocolate. not chocolate. Mm. So uh, obviously we're going to ignore that completely because we all know the top one is Helka. <laughs> <laughs> now we've got to wrap it up because Michael tells us to. Yeah. And he says we must put the pun in, wrap it up, because we need to wrap up because it's so cold. So wrap up, Rich. Okay, it's a wrap. <laughs> Bye for now.